1: It's that time again. It is Lost in Science time on the Community Radio Network. My name is Chris, and boy, howdy, do I have some science for you today? Do you? I think so. I hope so, yes. Um, yes do you? I, well, Claire, Stu, um, we're going to see what we can do. We're going to do our best to science our ways through the airwaves. Today. Um, As I said, yes, my name is Chris, and I am talking about. Well, a few weeks ago, we talked about the Australian of the Year, Michelle Simmons, quantum physicist Michelle Simmons. Big win for physics. Yes, big win for physics. There was another win as well. Um, The senior Australian of the Year was also a physicist, a biophysicist called Graham Farquhar. So, we're going to have a bit of a look at uh, Graham Farquhar and his achievements, which are legion. Claire, what have you got for us today?
0: Well, Easter is just around the corner, Chris, and you know what that means. Hop, 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 bilbies are back in town. Really? Well, I mean, chocolate I think... Bilbies. Chocolate Chocolate bilbies. Um, look, I think everyone out there should uh, support chocolate bilbies instead of chocolate bunnies. Um, and even more so now, some new research has come out about... Um, bilbies, our favourite um, hopping marsupial, and um, and how they have evolved with predators such as dingoes, or yeah. So I'm going to be looking at that research and looking at their innate um, ability to recognise predators.
1: Right. Okay. Uh, it's being wrapped in alfoil and made of chocolate. Part of there.
2: It's um, part of their defence mechanism.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> actually the chocolate Bilby never saw me coming. Right, okay. Stu, what have you
2: got? Well, I was reading some new research the other day which probably might interest some people about the moon and how did the moon actually uh appear? Where did it come from? And no, it's not a giant dragon's egg. Cheese. Uh it's no, it's not made of cheese either. It's, it's very similar to what the Earth is made of, and that's always been somewhat of a mystery. Um, but some new research has been published which suggests a new hypothesis for how the Moon was formed many, many, many years ago. So breaking news of billions of years ago. Yeah, that's right.
1: Okay, fair enough. Well then, on with the show. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. Now, as I said, a few weeks ago, we were justifiably proud of quantum physicist Michelle Simmons being awarded Australian of the Year. Um, we did, at the time, mention that the Senior Australian of the Year was another physicist, biophysicist Graham Farquhar. So let us talk about the Senior Australian of the Year and his achievements, shall we? Yeah, let's shall. So first of all, I have a question. Yep. What what exactly does a biophysicist do? From his definition, it's basically applying the the methods and techniques of physics to biological um, systems okay so in in particular uh his work has mostly been on things to do with modeling photosynthesis and those sort of processes in plants all right, so that's that's actually pretty important stuff to understand really. It is fairly important stuff. Okay, Graham Farquhar has a background. His family's background is in farming in Tasmania, although his father was a scientist at the CSIRO. And when he was uh, himself becoming interested in the science, his father encouraged him to try out biophysics. And so about... Around about uh, 40 years ago, he and his colleagues at the Australian National University decided to, to model the process of, of photosynthesis. Basically, they wanted to do the whole thing. So, um, you know, people kind of had a bit of understanding about the different aspects of what different chemicals might do and different sort of aspects of the whole process, but they wanted to put them all together into one big equation so wow. that they could understand how photosynthesis works. and wow. from, from light
2: hitting the thing to... Yeah, Meaning yeah, the whole the
1: process end. and all the, all the different inputs, you know, so all the different inputs of, of, um, in the atmosphere, of the light, of the, of the enzymes, in the plants, everything so like that.
0: computer model it?
1: No, mathematical modelling. I mean, they would have, they probably have had rudimentary computers back in...
0: Human computers. In the
1: 1980s. I imagine they would have had some computers, but um, yeah, no, well, it's, it's more about getting the understanding of mathematics, I suppose, is the main thing. And one of the things he was particularly interested in was uh, stomata.
0: Ah, that's an organelle. Yeah, do you is know what a stomata, a
1: no,
2: stomata it's not, is? No, 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 no. It's part of the leaf. What does it do, <sighs> Stu? It basically opens and closes to allow gas exchange from the interior of the leaf to the outside atmosphere. That's correct. Why that do is... I have
0: to sit next to the botanist? <laughs>
2: Sorry. Stomata, yeah, they're, they're little, little pores <laughs> that
1: let the gases in and out. Um, so you need CO2, obviously carbon dioxide for photosynthesis, but uh, opening the stomata also lets water escape from the leaf. So you kind of have Which to isn't balance a good thing. Yeah, uh, opening and closing. And um, what he found in his work was uh, that the more water-efficient plants, they tend not to open their stomata as widely or for as long as less water-efficient plants. Um, They were actually able to calculate the effect this had on the carbon isotopes in the plant. Um, So basically, the the more you have the tomato open, you get a different mix of the atoms, the carbon atoms in the CO2 that's absorbed due to different, slightly different diffusion rates of the different isotopes. And so what they could actually do then is by measuring the carbon content of plants, they could figure out how water-efficient they were.
2: So basically, so all of the carbon in the plant comes from the atmosphere. Yeah. So they just look at, the different ratios of different isotopes. Yeah, like carbon-12
1: carbon-14, yeah.
2: And they know how water-efficient the plant is. That's pretty amazing, That really. is pretty amazing, yeah.
1: Um, so, yeah, they gave them a way of measuring the water efficiency of plants, and this eventually led to developing new varieties of wheat, such as one called Drysdale, which is suitable for dry Australian conditions.
2: Um, <laughs> Drysdale, those, those wacky, wacky wheat <laughs> scientists.
1: This, this gave um, Graham Farquhar and his old school friend Richard Richards <laughs> um, for this, they received the 2014 Rank Prize, which some people call the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in agriculture. Now, there are a lot of prizes that are considered the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in various fields. Um, I should point out that Graham Farquhar in 2017 also won the Kyoto Prize, which is another thing that's often billed as being a equivalent of Nobel Prize. But this is kind of in general sciences, not just in a specific Field.
0: Well, there is no Nobel Prize in agriculture, so no, this is true. You need the Kyoto Prize.
1: Now, this is obviously is fairly important in the in the, with the changing climate to understand how crops deal with uh, changing you know, atmospheric and water conditions. In fact, uh, Graham Farquhar's work on the effect of different atmospheric conditions led to him being part of the Australian delegation to the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, as well as being a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Wow. One of the things he has been looking at lately is the fact that the rates of evaporation appear to be going down with climate change, which is kind of not what people would expect. You'd think that you, with the increased temperatures you'd get mm. more... Uh, evaporation. What his research so far is finding is that there's been a decrease in wind speed of about 15% over the last 30 years. And so the decrease in overall wind speed is bringing down the rate of evaporation, which kind of affects the overall equation for how plants cope with um. change. Is that, the is that
2: change. evapotranspiration, so evaporation from the plant leaf?
1: Well, this is, I think, evaporation in general. They're looking at even just um, measuring pan evaporation. We have basically yep. a pan of water out and measure how quickly that evaporates. So the because Bureau of Meteorology and other people like that have been observing that it hasn't been as high as they
2: expected. Right. It, the other thing that I think would affect it too, especially as, well with regard to plants, is how much more water is in the atmosphere already. So if, if, there's, if it's a more humid environment, there's less likelihood for water to enter into that atmosphere it's so quite, that, that must be changing as well
1: quite possibly hmm. but um yeah he's putting it down to, to wind speed primarily which changes their understanding of what the water yeah what the world of the future will be like as well uh, another thing he's looking at related to climate change is uh, trying to identify which trees will grow faster in response to high co2 levels so we can work out you know carbon sinks and and this kind of stuff and the effect on on agriculture, yeah. So it is useful stuff. You know, it may not be for some people as exciting as building a quantum computer, but for other people it is as exciting or more exciting. So for that, I think we should honour Senior Australian of the Year, Graham Farquhar. Good on you.
2: Well, it's it's pretty important stuff, you know, Wheat. If he's working on wheat, that's bread and, you know, potentially beer and a whole bunch of other things, pasta, things like that. So if you like eating, then you should really appreciate his work. I'm saving the pizzas of the future. Yes. Saving
0: the pizzas of the future. And, yeah, thanks for not retiring just yet, Graham. Exactly.
2: I'm Maggie Adair and Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR.
0: Now I'm never one to shy away from a bilby story, especially as it is close to Easter, and we should all be thinking about eating chocolate bilbies instead of chocolate bunnies um, every year. I don't know if you guys uh, partake in the Easter bilby uh, chocolate Easter bilbies. I, th-
1: ch- I figured that that um, rabbits are kind of an invasive pest, so we should eat as many of them <laughs> as we can, chocolate or otherwise. Yeah,
0: but if you buy the chocolate Easter bilbies. Then money goes towards preserving and conserving the bilbies. Okay, okay. Well, that's good. If, yeah. if only good. if
2: only some of the money from the chocolate rabbits would go to eradicating the yeah. rabbits. That would yeah. be that would be a corally, corollary that I would like to see as yeah. well. It
0: wouldn't be. Who do we need to talk to about that? <laughs> Cadbury? get him on the phone. We'll go down there. Um, well, anyway, this story is not about bunnies. Um, it is a story about bilbies, though. And different introduced species, both dogs and cats. So, as you know, bilbies are one of the most loved nocturnal Australian animals, but they are notoriously shy. You know, they hang out at night. They come out of their burrows very tentatively. You don't see them very often. I
1: saw one recently at the Adelaide Zoo. I was very excited. You were very excited? Yeah. Well, you know, it was in the zoo, but, you know, it was... Do they they have a nocturnal nocturnal enclosure? Yeah, it was really cool. I I had bilbies. Yeah.
0: I mean, a lot of people see bandicoots and think they're bilbies, but... um, No,
1: no, because they're bandy.
0: They're bandies, not bilbies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No,
1: they have bands on them.
0: Oh, they are bandy. Yes, and they are also... Banded, I think is the correct word. Okay, there. yeah. <laughs> anyway, some so some new research to come out of the University of New South Wales tells us a bit more about how this shy little marsupial has evolved and in particular how they have evolved alongside their predators. So just to back up a bit, bilbies have been in decline since Europeans arrived. They used to occupy huge swathes of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland, but now occupy about 20% of their former range and in much lower abundance. Now, one big reason for this is predators like cats, dogs and foxes kill and eat bilbies. But... There are some places in Australia that are creating fenced-in natural environments where these little marsupials, like bilbies and and other small, tiny little marsupials, like, I don't know, dunnets, they're very cute as well, uh, (laughs) can roam around and reproduce generation after generation without even having to worry about predators. One in particular um, that you might have heard of is called Arid Recovery. Have you heard of that area? Um, no. No? Well, um, you should look it up. It's very interesting. It's in South Australia and it's about 128 square kilometres of fenced off area and they've totally cleared out cats, foxes and rabbits from that area. So it's sort of like this huge, huge area where arid zone native species can can populate without any predators. Um, so back to the Bilby evolution. So the researchers wanted to know about how much exposure so I guess how long it takes native animals like bilbies before they respond to the smell of potential predators, and I'm not talking like how long within their life time before they respond to a threat. I'm talking about like um,
2: generationally,
0: generationally. Right.
2: So, so how long they actually the species takes to adapt to exactly a new how predator. long right. the
0: species takes to adapt to a new predator. So they looked at two predator species. They looked at cats and they looked at um, dogs slash dingoes. So cats have been around bilbies for around 200 years and dogs slash dingoes have been around bilbies for a lot longer. They've got about 3,000 years of shared history, shared evolutionary history. So anyway, this is the interesting part. So they took – not that it hasn't all been fascinating – but they they took cat and dog poop. Um, they took dog poop because – Fun fact, it is exactly the same. It is indistinguishable from uh, dingo poop. They had to put that in the research article. Uh, and they they took – well, they did. How do they know that, though? Well, they've done tests.
2: Did they ask the
0: bilby? They've done science, Chris. They oh. oh, asked the bilby. Anyway, they put this poop in front of the bilby burrows. Now, these weren't just any old bilby. These were bilbies from the Arid Recovery Project. So they're bilbies who have lived a life of no predators, no cats, no dogs, no dingoes, no anything. They're like the most naive of all the bilbies. Uh
1: (laughs) I mean, bilbies are known for their naivety as it is.
0: Are they? I don't know. They're kind of
2: cute. You think they'd be fairly innocent and... (laughs) But they're 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 predators, aren't they? They they they're insectivorous. And, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Anyway, so once they um once they put the poop in front of their bob in front of burrows, they observe to see if the bilbies change their behaviour at all, i.e. if they smelt anything strange. Their evolved instincts recognise the poop as a threat to them, and they change their behaviour accordingly. So that's what they were looking for. They were looking for some sort of like response to this um, poop. So what they found, what the researchers found was uh, in these wild, naive bilbies, uh, these bilbies actually did change their behaviour. They were much more reluctant to leave their burrows when dog poop was put out the front. Um, on their front doorstep
2: Funnily enough So am I But
0: Yeah I've... Yeah but I mean I think everyone here has Smelled cat poop as well And you got to say That doesn't smell very good No true
1: But I mean It doesn't normally make people Put like passive aggressive notes up, up on the <laughs> on their fence Saying please don't let your dog poo Outside of my house
2: Which is what normally Well that, dog poo.
0: That, that's because Dog owners have some sort of Say over where a dog oh, can okay, poo yeah, And yeah. cat owners Have zero say Over where a cat poos and just does What the hell it wants Right <laughs> So these naive bilbies were more reluctant to leave their burrows when dog poop was there, but when they switched it out for the feral cat poop, there was no change in the bilbies' behaviour. They just left their burrows and acted like everything was totally normal, which it wasn't. <laughs> anyway, so I guess what this means is that three thousand years of shared coevolution between. Um, dingoes is enough for the bilbies to have this innate response to a smell and so this supports a great theory with a great name it's called the ghosts of predators past hypothesis which is pretty pretty pretty
2: cool uh it's It's always good to have a catchy name for your uh, for your research papers
0: it is um so the hypothesis is like that a prey's ability to respond to the odours and images of predators increases with the length of time that they have coexisted. Anyway, obviously 200 years is not enough time for the bilbies to produce an innate behavioural response to cats. I think this could be an alternative hypothesis called the prey's invisibility cloak or something like that because the bilbies had no idea the cats were there or were a threat. Um, is that w- why you're rolling your eyes at me, Chris?
1: I mean, there's not actually invisibility cloak. It's just not <laughs> noticing the poo. It's like the the predator is not hiding.
0: Yeah, but... I mean, I mean, they're they're invisible via, um, you know, smell. They don't know. All right, you're just fine. trying to okay. Latch I, don't onto the Harry Potter trend. I don't think it's gonna. That's <laughs> you know, you're trying, be, you're
1: trying to be you trying to be topical. <laughs> um, but
2: yeah, is Harry Potter really trop- topical anymore? Really.
0: <laughs> anyway, hopefully, these new insights into predator prey evolution in the Bilby will be able to inform uh, future conservation efforts to protect our wonderful bilbies
2: Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So we all know, uh, based on the output of songwriters over the many years of pop music, that the sun comes out during the day and what comes out at night? Um, mosquitoes. <laughs> That's, that's not any songs stars? about the, the mosquitoes. Yes, stars do come out as well, but what, you know, come on, what's oh, the op- what's the, the opposite moon. of the sun? The Obviously, moon. the moon is the romantic ideal, but of course, we know that the moon doesn't come out at night, every night. It comes out about half the time at night, and the rest of the time it comes out during the day, and we just can't see it because it's in its different phase. And mm-hmm.
0: sometimes we can see it. Sometimes and you can. not it's always yeah. like... What are you oh, doing well, yeah, here? Yeah, yeah.
2: Exactly. you're you a bit early, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. So, so what what else do we know about the moon? So the moon it, really. the moon is Earth's major satellite. It's the only permanent one we have. There are a couple of hidden. Oh, uh, there's some impermanent satellites. Yeah, there's a couple sort of floating around just outside of our field what, of like view.
0: The, uh, space station.
2: Um, No, 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 no. Natural, like, just big chunks of rock that have been caught by the Earth's Earth's gravity. It's controversial, I think. It is. Yeah, yeah. They sort of move in and out. of. That's why they're saying it's, it's, you know, it's the only permanent one, because it's just there. So it's been there for a long time. Shapes the tides on Earth. uh, Probably influenced evolution by making tidal zones, which periodically get submerged each day, you know, allowed things to... Transition slowly from the ocean where all the life started onto the land and all that sort of stuff, and it's also pretty big. It's the largest natural satellite relative to the planet it orbits in our entire solar system. Oh,
1: really? Yeah. What about? Oh, I was going to say, what about Pluto?
2: but relative, the,
0: did I, okay. Also, it is it is bigger than,
2: than it is bigger than Pluto.
1: No, what I'm saying is that that um that Pluto's moon um
2: yeah, Charon, but,
1: yeah. but Pluto's not really a planet. So. It's not. It's not a planet.
0: I heard something the other day. This is a neat bit of trivia. If you got um, all of the planets in the solar system and, like, line them up end to end, um, they would fit in the distance between the Earth and the moon. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's sort of cool. It's sort of cool. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on.
2: No, 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 it's fine. So one big question is, Where did the moon come from? Anyone? It's always been there, Stu. It's always been there. Ever since I've been alive. Has it?
0: Or or wasn't it like um, part of Earth at one point? No?
2: Well, have you ever heard of Thea? Thea? Thea. Yes. Thea was the mother of the Greek goddess of the moon, Silene, but also the name of a hypothetical object which crashed into the Earth four and a half billion years ago. So this
1: is when the Earth had just formed, and I believe theory is meant to be about the size of Mars and hit the
2: Earth. That is correct. Thank you. So this is most likely how the Moon was formed. Well, this is how we have thought the Moon has formed. There's actually been a number of different hypotheses over the years. Mm. There's a mystery why the Earth and the Moon shared so many common elements, as in they're made of pretty much the same stuff. But the idea was uh, that the Earth was hit by a Mars-sized object and that seemed to explain where did the moon come from. Well, it was knocked off by this big giant rock that slammed into the Earth.
0: So is the moon part of Thea or is the moon part of Earth?
2: Well,
1: you'd they, expect a bit of Theia in both. Would they, you?
2: Actually, they actually have found traces of an object that's uh, familiar to both. So there's right. bits, bits of what they think is Theia on the moon. There's bits of what they think is Theia on Earth as well. So basically the theory is a whole bunch of Earth was sheared off by this rogue planet which had been previously orbiting close by in a Lagrange point. Um, so it was basically sort of on the same orbit as Earth. Can wasn't you explain getting... what a Lagrange point is? Yeah, it, so it was far enough away from Earth that it wasn't getting pulled in by Earth's gravity and it was sort of close enough to Earth that it was being protected from the sun's gravity by the Earth's pull as well and the other planets. But one of the larger outer planets like maybe Venus or probably Jupiter or, you know, one of the big ones that are further out than Earth, knocked it out of its Lagrange point. So it wobbled out of its stable position and had a big stack into our home planet. Luckily, back then, nobody was home. Well, we don't really know because the kind of catastrophic collision that would have caused would have wiped out pretty much anything that might have been alive on Earth. But chances are there was nothing around then anyway. So the idea was then that the bits of earth that were smashed into space eventually accumulated into a couple of small satellites possibly so maybe a couple of moons and then they eventually in turn crashed into each other and formed the moon that we have now. It was an exciting time. It was it was there was a whole lot going on in our solar system but all sorts of other things all the other planets were sort of getting their you know shapes together as well. So this all seems pretty straightforward and it makes sense, and Thea disappeared and remnants can be found, as I said, on both the Earth and the Moon. So the story seems to add up. But science. Uh, A recently published article has a different hypothesis for the origin of the Moon and involves complete destruction of the Earth in the process. So currently, you know, or previously we thought that, you know, a chunk of Earth was sort of knocked into space and then it Coalesced and formed into the moon. These guys who just published a paper in February in the Journal of Geophysical Research Planets uh, still incorporates Thea as part of the story, but in this version, they hit each other basically head on. So the Mars-sized object and Thea and the Earth hit each other head on at quite high speed and basically completely vaporized the Earth. And they think it turned into a swirling gaseous donut. a synestia coming from the Greek sin for together and hestia the Greek goddess of architecture and structures so the disc they proposed would have been spinning fast enough due to the combined momentum of the colliding objects and formed a kind of molten vapor spinning around in space and orbiting the sun at the same time and they calculate the vapor would have cooled at variable rates and the moon solidified before the earth had recombined and began orbiting the spinning gas cloud, which obviously had the same mass as what the Earth has now, because all that gas ended up being, or the molten vapour, which they're calling it, ended up being the Earth. So it still had the same mass. So the Moon started orbiting a giant cloud of gas, and then it turned back into the Earth. It's an interesting hypothesis, but as I say, they don't claim to have tested their hypothesis. They're basing it purely on calculations, pretty much. Um, But they'll have to really to get anyone on board with this. They'll, so have by, to, by
1: testing, they'll have to make some sort of prediction that then they can, you know, measure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There, there's got to be some way that they can measure it. Or they could look for an example of a synestia in other solar systems if they could figure out a way to actually measure that. Yeah, I thought it would depend else. on.
1: You have to find it just at the right time and assume they're exactly the same conditions have Absolutely. Yep. But, I
2: mean, there are billions and trillions of solar systems. Mm. So hopefully one of them will be just at the right time and they can uh, they can prove their hypothesis. But obviously they're not going to be out looking for that, the nights the moon's out, because it'll just be too bright and they won't be able to see it.
1: Well, that is it, sadly, for uh, one of the best episodes of Lost in Science ever. I'm just going to put that out there.
0: Maybe this year.
1: Maybe this year. Well, maybe this month.
0: Maybe this week.
1: <laughs> this week. Uh, well, we've learned about, what have we learned about, bilbies? And their... Um, Co evolution with their predators. Yes, and their inability to smell cat poo.
0: Yeah, and Graham Farquhar, our biophysicist and senior citizen at Australian of the Year. Yes. And, and that
2: there is a moon in the sky called the moon.
1: The moon hits your <laughs> eye like a bigger pizza, no, like a big donut. In the sky. Well, we've got to save That's those future pizzas. Yeah. Yeah. future pizzas. We do have to save those future pizzas. Now, Lost in Science, it is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. as airs across Australia the, the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Um, if you'd like to tell us about the, what the Bilbies are doing in your area or how you think the moon was formed, uh, that should be interesting please email us at lostinscience at gmail.com yes I'm going to say please email us with your theories of how the moon was formed um, find us on Claire shaking her head find us on Facebook we are Lost in Science on 3CR find us on Twitter you can tweet us your craziest theories uh, we're Lost in Science 1 you can also find us on the 3CR website 3CR.org.au slash Lost in Science you can find us on your friendly podcasting app uh, if you are to us to like I think Apple Podcasts you can give us a rating and a review um, yeah which is always a good thing to do encourage us encourage other people People to listen to us, or you could just listen to us on the radio, Uh, same time next week. And once again, Stu, Claire, and Chris will get
2: lost Lost in in science.
0: Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast.